You may want to <laughs> stretch your legs a little bit. Since you've already meditated, I'll read to you now. considered to be the most profound uh, understanding of, of wisdom. It's, the, it's called the root wisdom, the Mula Madhyamaka. And uh, the person who was commenting on this was considered to be like the greatest uh, person, the greatest uh, practitioner who, who fully understood the meaning of the root wisdom. The root wisdom is the true nature of reality the most profound, the most subtle uh, way of understanding the, the last part of the intellectual way of understanding the true nature of reality. So that's the Mula, Mula Madhyamika. Now, Jason Kappa is now commenting on that commentary. Okay, so you have Nagarjuna, who is explaining the, the essential teaching of perfection of wisdom of the Buddha, and that needs to be commented upon, and that's commented by many people. And then the one who's considered to be the best commentator of Nagarjuna, that's... Who's that? Chandrakirti. Thank you. <laughs> and that's uh, Chandrakirti's commentary now, after a few hundred years, now different opinions start to arise. And now Jason Kappa is trying to uh, clarify things, and he's writing a commentary to that. Now, I'm not, this is not about that commentary. <laughs> this is about a line in the very, very beginning where Jason Kappa is, is giving us the reason as to why are we bothering studying uh, the perfection of wisdom in the first place? And he quotes the Lankavatara Sutra. Lankarvatara Sutra. It's a very famous Mahayana Sutra that is, that is uh, quoted a lot. Especially it is quoted to sort of... Uh, uh, sort of trace back what, why do, where does this uh, understanding of the Mahayana teaching comes from, especially when it comes to the practice of the Bodhisattva. Now, the Lankavatara Sutra, there seems to be several editions of it, but there's a, a nice, there's a translation that's fairly good, and you can uh, find it online. Uh, now, our topic has been love and compassion. And I've tried, uh, and I think I've, I've, I've failed miserably in trying to show the uh, trying to think of a word that means more than great. <laughs> the, the immense 
significance of love and compassion and how we are how we fail to fully grasp the 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 the, the, the immense stuck with that word for a while the immense potential that that is within love and compassion but because we think we we know what love and compassion is already because we experienced it we were hurt by it we were, we had some fun with it so we think we already understand it and we want wisdom because that's the uh, that's no that's that's the meat of the of the spiritual path that's what we haven't that's what we have we don't have yet and that's what we want to have so that we can get to some real spiritual stuff i'm not sure how true this is but i i mentioned it before uh, Supposedly, every once in a while, some great yogi who's been meditating for quite some time in in, uh, in the mountains of Dharamsala or the Himalayas, they go to have a, a yogi to yogi chat with the Dalai Lama. And then there, they're very uh, open, very explicit about their experiences. You know, oh, are you on the first level? Well, no, um, I'm still on. Uh, I'm still. Oh, oh, I'm not quite there yet. Well, he's on the fifth level. Some things like things like that. And supposedly, it is. It came out. I don't know if it's supposed to be a secret meeting, but somehow it came out <laughs> that uh, when the uh, the Dalai Lama is talking to the yogis about bodhicitta, and and someone mentioned something about uh, about wisdom, and the Dalai Lama said, "Ah." Oh, I left that back a long time ago. I'm struggling now with bodhicitta. This is the Dalai Lama, who's supposed to be the embodiment of bodhicitta. And he's struggling with bodhicitta. And he said, wisdom, that stuff, you know, that's baby stuff. Okay? So, uh, is that, maybe that story is a fabrication. Maybe somebody just made it up. But it has, uh, I would like it to be true. <laughs> So I have to go into the book, which is supposedly where every, every Mahayana practitioner says it's the Buddha himself, who either the Buddha himself said it, or it is understood that the idea came from the Buddha. Maybe the Buddha didn't say the exact words, but the idea is from the Buddha. Okay. So this is the Lankavatara Sutra, the sutra that is quoted by everybody, the sutra that uh, Jesongkapa begins by quoting in order to explain wisdom. Okay, so I'm going to read a couple of things, just for inspiration. So see if I can, uh, with these words, can sort of make an impression upon you about the immense city of the greatness of love and compassion. So there is, uh, remember... If you've taken some of the ACI classes, uh, you probably have heard of uh, uh, Subhuti and Ananda and how they are the ones that usually instigate a, a sutra. They ask the Buddha a question, and it happens to be the question that everybody's, that would whose answer would benefit everyone. Okay? So this particular sutra is not Subhuti, it's not Ananda, it's a, a, a practitioner called Mahamati. 
And the Mahamati is, is basically asking the Buddha questions about, explain to me what is Mahayana. And the Buddha is explaining, uh, what, what does this term mean? So that is the, it is the Mahayana is already well understood, well practiced, and now it has its own vocabulary, and now he wants uh, uh, the Buddha himself to explain the terms. Okay. Uh, I'm going to have to go back and forth. But one of the things that the Buddha does is that he explains uh, what are called different practitioners, different spiritual practitioners. And he says they're all sincere. They all make a, a, a sincere effort. And eventually, they're able to transcend uh, ignorance and they're able to get to wisdom. And those who stay with wisdom, they're the ones who are called, uh, uh, in, this, in, this, in this book, they're called masters and disciples. Okay? What you have come to know as Hinayana practitioners. Okay? And eventually, they enter into Nirvana. They enter into what, their, what is there in Nirvana. That is, no longer have to be subjected to rebirth, no longer have to be subject to experience discomfort, any kind of suffering whatsoever. Okay, they are completely emancipated. Okay? So they've reached the end of what wisdom can give them. So what else do they need? Well, what, what, what are they lacking that they're not able to go further than that? What is further than that? The nirvana that they experience is personal. That's why it's called personal liberation. It's just them in their own universe of bliss. Okay? And nothing else. No one else. So to make a distinction... Uh, as to what distinguishes them. Now the, uh, the Buddha is talking about uh, the Bodhisattva. Why is it that the Bodhisattva is able to continue where the, the others are not able to continue? Why is it that the others are enticed, uh, uh, find the bliss of the state that they've reached uh, Irresistible. That it makes them completely forget about others. What is it? What is it about some disciples that they're not subject to this? To, to, to be to be so to, to to be so enticed. Okay. So these beings are called the bodhisattvas, owing to their original vows, the vow to emancipate all beings. They are transported by emotions of love and compassion. As they become aware of the part they are to perform in the carrying out of their vows for emancipation of all beings. Thus, they do not enter into nirvana. But in truth, they too are already in nirvana. Because in their emotions of love and compassion, there is no rising of discrimination. Henceforth, with them, discrimination no more takes place. Because the transcendental intelligence, because of transcendental intelligence, only one conception is present. The promotion of the realization of the perfection of wisdom. This is called that there is no helping others realize this. That is what's in their mind. That's their main 
motivation for existing. And because of this main emotion, motivation for existing, they're able to maintain their uh, inability to be sub, uh, uh, enticed by, by the bliss of nirvana. This is called the bodhisattva's nirvana, the losing of oneself in the bliss of perfect self-yielding. So this is the, the key element. Without, with, without it, that uh, someone on a spiritual path cannot make any, there's a point where you cannot make any further progress. And it's not that uh, you reach a point and you, you, you reach the end of it without love and compassion and, and then right next, right after that, there's, there's this incredible uh, uh, state. So with love and compassion, you're able to go beyond this. Let's say this is the edge of it. This is the end, right? All This is the uh, nirvana. And you're, you're not only able to go here, but you'll go, you go even beyond this way. Where the Buddhas, where the Bodhisattva is able to go beyond, it's uh, mind-boggling. And this is the main. This is the main thing I want to read for you tonight. So, what? Why? Other than what is it that makes their love and their compassion able to make them go go beyond nirvana, personal nirvana? They are. They are, they are sustained by the powers of the Buddhas. And this happens in two ways. Because of their compassion for sentient beings, because of their faith in Buddhahood, this attracts the Buddhas to them. And the very presence of the Buddhas around them sustains them. It allows them to be able to go beyond personal nirvana. And the Buddhas themselves being attracted to them, the Buddhas themselves, uh, it's like uh, they, they leave an opening for the Buddhas to come, and the Buddhas come, and the Buddhas apply their, their what you might call blessings on them, and they're able to continue. They're able to make progress and reach incredible stages. So there are two kinds of sustaining power which come from the Tathagatas, the Buddhas, and are at the service of the bodhisattvas. The first kind of sustaining power is the bodhisattva's own faith in the Buddhas. And by reason of this, the Buddhas are able to manifest them, themselves to them and give them, their, give them their, their, their assistance. And the second kind of sustaining power comes from the radiation, the, the power radiating from the Buddhas themselves, which enables the bodhisattvas to attain and pass through various samadhis, various states of bliss, without being, uh, without being stuck or trapped in them, without becoming intoxicated by their bliss.
and then the Bodhisattva goes to various levels. Uh, here, it sort of it breaks it down into three levels. The level where they are experiencing the same kind of bliss as those who enter their own personal nirvana, and the the stage in between where they are uh, they've gone beyond the personal bliss of the of the of those who have entered personal nirvana, and they're still practicing, they're still learning, they're still perfecting themselves. And then they reach, finally, they reach the third stage, the last stage. And all this time, you know that, they're practicing the perfections of the perfect, what are called the, the six perfections, or the ten perfections. The perfection of generosity, the perfection of patience, and ethics, and so forth. And the perfection of wisdom. So at each stage, there is an intensity of how they practice each how they practice generosity, how they practice ethics. And basically what is going on in those, in, in those uh, stages that they're losing uh, their ego. They're lo losing uh, the sense of separation between themselves and others. They're losing sense of duality. And eventually they arrive at the final, the final level of understanding of wisdom, the perfection of wisdom, the paramita of wisdom. The paramita of wisdom, at that, so now they've reached the paramita of wisdom, the paramita of wisdom will no longer be concerned with pragmatic wisdom and erudition, but will reveal itself in its true perfectness of all-inclusive truth, which is love. So at the end of perfecting the perfection of wisdom, you end up with love. And it is right there in the sutra. And that is the highest prajna paramita. That is the highest perfection of wisdom. So it's something called the Bodhisattva's Nirvana. Okay. Now, wh why is it? Why, why is that term Bodhisattva's Nirvana? Nirvana is supposed to be like the the, the finite, the point where the, the point where you reach where there's nothing else to do. Because the Bodhisattva's career begins in a way where he's able to help sentient beings. That is, he's gone through all the, what you might call all the lessons that the world can can and can give him or her. And yet, after going beyond that, there is still even much more work to be done. So in that phase, in that stage where the Bodhisattva is beyond the world and yet is continuing to engage with the world, that is called the Bodhisattva's Nirvana. And why is it called the Bodhisattva's Nirvana? The Bodhisattva's Nirvana is perfect tranquilization, but it is not extension or inertness. Extension or inertness means it's not something that is where they're living in their own personal universe, enjoying their own bliss, and that's it. Okay, it is not such kind of a tranquility. While there is an entire absence of discrimination and purpose, 
there is the freedom and spontaneity of potentiality. There is relax. <laughs> there is let go. There is let be. So it's a good practice. <laughs> and it has come with the attainment of impatient acceptance of the truth of emptiness, imagelessness, egolessness. Here is perfect solitude, undisturbed by any gradation or continuous succession, but radiant with the potency and freedom of its self-nature, which is the self-nature of noble wisdom. Noble wisdom is the translator's uh, way of uh, saying perfection of wisdom. Okay? So the self-nature of the perfection of wisdom, blissfully peaceful with the, rest, with the serenity. What is the self-nature of the perfection of wisdom? The serenity of perfect love. all the reading that we're going to <laughs> so although right now the kind of love that the, that the sutra is talking about is beyond us to, un to fully understand even though we seem to have fully experienced what love is capable of giving us already and because of that we don't put as much. We we might give it what 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 we make what one may call poetic significance. It's just very nice. It's a nice idea. It makes nice poetry, but in the real world, you need something else. Okay, that's the ideas uh, unfortunately that a lot of us have about when we hear the word love. Okay, it's almost as if you could say. It's been the word has been used so much that it sort of it becomes watered. It lost its it has lost its potency with us. Okay. So even though in your own experience of love, you experience it's it seems that what you have what you are experiencing is weakness. Perhaps this might be just an illusion that love is a weakness. Because if you're able to fully master love, then, only then, can you experience the ultimate, uh, the ultimate realization, the ultimate enlightenment. So there must be something to it. So why there... The reading is about the wisdom is not is not about love. Say that again, sorry. So why is is all the teachings about wisdom and not about love? Well, you mean uh, why isn't love uh, the thing that is talked about mostly, mm -hmm. rather than wisdom talked about mostly? Mm -hmm. Well, it's something something about uh, when something is very precious. You don't display it all the time. And also, uh, 
a way of allowing people to come to appreciate it on their own. And you can uh, spend many years practicing being a great uh, Madhyamikas, Madhyamikas, Madhyamis, Madhyamikas, Madhyamikas. You can be a great person of, of, of perfection of wisdom and you're able to explain it backwards and forward. And you will always feel there was something missing. And until you allow yourself to go to its full, full expression, you will not see what lies at the end of it, which is love. And when you look at love, you see wisdom. So they're one and the same thing, but when you understand it from a love perspective, it gives you a much more profound understanding of the, of, of the universe. So if instead of, just, instead of saying everything is absent of something, but rather you say everything is a play of love, it gives you a different perspective, a different way of... Uh, appreciating how you relate with, with everything, with people and objects. And you have, to, you have to take this to its, uh, you know, ultimate expression, okay, without uh, limiting it. I'm just, just thinking um, that also, I think it may have something do with the depth of the experience of actually experiencing the perfection of wisdom because when you have that kind of shock which is that before that you're always laying claim to something even if it's just yourself your own mind you have something you're claiming it it's yours and when you have that shock of knowing that it absolutely is not yours that there's absolutely nothing you can claim you're letting go of all those claims and where are you letting them go where are they going they're going out to every other being because you're holding that thought as well of benefiting all beings, mm -hmm. re releasing any claim you have, and then everything that you felt you had is now dispersed, released to all beings. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a perfect giving in that sense because you no longer are clinging to anything. Mm -hmm. So you're giving it up. Mm -hmm. So it's a perfect giving up of everything. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. and, and, and it's not like you give it to the vacuum. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sorry if this is, uh, it will be difficult, but there was one thing that you read and it, it ended with something like the inclusive truth, which is love, and yeah. I was wondering if you could reread it. Okay. I don't mind rereading it. <laughs> uh, my encounter with the sutra was when I was very nosy. <laughs> I read the sutra uh, when you were probably were, weren't even born yet. <laughs> yes, I would love to read it again. And I haven't read the sutra in such a long time. And there's a relationship that I made with it that I forgot and that I'm uh, getting back together again. <laughs> okay. So... Uh, in this passage, the Buddha is talking about the three stages of basically practicing how does a 
Bodhisattva progress in practicing the perfections. And he lists all the perfections before, and then he lists the perfection of wisdom last. Okay, what now, in the highest level of practicing the perfection of wisdom, how is it like? The paramita the per- of wisdom, or the perfection of wisdom, will no longer be concerned with pragmatic wisdom and erudition, but will reveal itself in its true perfectness of all-inclusive truth, which is love. ideals that stand in our way of really being able to love completely and, mm. and to you know, love correctly, mm. treat the people that we love correctly. And I feel that, you know, at least in my own personal experiences of gaining wisdom, I've become more loving and better at loving other people. Mm. And so I just think that her question is really interesting because it does seem like you have to but I'm confused now because I mean what the idea that I have for example when you want to protect yourself from love or when you are betrayed or something mm-hmm. the first reaction is go to the mind and go to the rationality and wisdom it's mm-hmm. just I mean it's interesting to hear that that one give you takes you to the other one because my ignorance is like like it, it will be the opposite mm-hmm. or or you are in in love or you are using your mind and being rational and analyzing everything or you just are working from your heart and you are loving mm-hmm. and it's I don't know why this idea of of they are the opposite and know that one takes you to the other one and that connection is is my struggle. I'm struggling. Okay. That Actually, uh, what uh, Warren was talking about can lead you to that. Uh, I, I think someone else had their hand up. Did you have your hand up? No. no? Okay. Uh, now, taking uh, from what Warren was talking about, uh, about you can no longer make any claims. Right? But in the sense of this no longer making me able to make a claim is in an ultimate way. Like, what, at what ultimate point can you reach and say, oh, now I can make, this is what I can claim. And because you cannot reach that point where you can make a claim, you can never make a claim. But there are things that, you are, that, 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 that seems to be yours. And that's why you began the search of making, of, of getting to that, uh, what can I ultimately claim? It's like you, you uh, yeah, <laughs> you're, you're a teenager, any teenagers here? Okay. <laughs> a teenager, when, when you were a teenager, you live in your parents' house. In your mind, this was your house. 
It wasn't your parents' house. It wasn't your parents. It was it's your house. And if you were to start to think, okay, what can I really make a claim to? And you start, you start, you start uh, reviewing. Okay, there's this. Oh no, that, that's not really. That's I, I didn't, I didn't pay for that. And you, and you start thinking about things that are closer to you, closer to you, closer to you, until you realize there isn't really anything that you can make a claim on, as far as you know, the position that you have as a teenager. Okay, you're not working yet. Okay. <laughs> so everything you have, everything that you love, everything that you you, you, you will beat someone up if they try to steal it from you. You can't really make an ultimate claim that, 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 oh yeah, I'm the one, this is mine. But there they are, and you're using them. Okay. So here you are in the universe. You have a body, even though you cannot make an ultimate claim to it, but there you are, you have a body. And there you are, you have this world that you experience in this way and that way. So what is it that uh, gives you the opportunity or the ability or the, uh, the experience that there might be something to claim. That is where love comes in. It is because of the principle of love. And, it's not, it, it, and you have to not look at it from a perspective of there you are and then you're looking at the universe. You have to f- throw yourself in the, in the mix. You're in the soup also. Okay? So you have to look at it as whenever you look at something which is appearing, which is functioning, and when you uh, try to pinpoint exactly how discreet or how isolated that thing is, you're not, you're not able to do it. So what is it that gives this appearance is that everything else is participating. Everyone else is allowing that to exist. If it wasn't for everyone else, that would not have existed. So that owes its existence to other. So whether there's a self, what you're looking at is the participation of others. And not just self, other, but whenever, wherever the self can be, whether the self is the cup, whether the self is me, whether the self is a thought, whether the self is uh, the world. Wherever you see something that seems to have a dis- dis- discreteness, discreteness to it, and you examine this discreteness, and you see that, ah, the inter- it's, it's like, I don't know which yogi said it, maybe all the yogis in all the traditions said it, <laughs> in one drop of water, there exists the universe. So wherever you see, wherever you see something, what you're seeing is what the universe has participated to, 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 to come to come together to do, and they only are able to do this because of this principle of love, and, and not that they bought or let, let, let's borrow this principle of love so we can make a universe. The only way that there can be such a thing as a universe is only if there is love. Did that help? (laughs) Wow, that's new. (laughs) So that's when you look for the object that is completely discreet, 
you come up empty. So you can focus on that when your mind is stuck on ego, when your mind is stuck on, uh, on attachment. So get rid of the habit of attachment because habit, attachment and ego cling onto discreteness, thinking that it's, it's, it's actually separated, separate. But when, in order to, to free yourself from uh, uh, the affliction of having, should, I should relate, I should, I should uh, relate to others in such a way where you're sep completely separating yourself, then you focus on that very, that, that the very same thing that you're looking at, you're looking at it, the reason that it's able to exist is, is because of love. Uh, I'm not sure which tradition said it, but uh, love is considered to be the glue. So you have all those all those parts. If it wasn't for the glue that holds them together, they, they would not they would not be this like so. Whatever uh, element that allows all these things to come to hold onto each other, that's what we're calling the the. That's the the love in terms of wisdom, the principle that allows something to exist to exist. So you can call it the only way for anything to exist. Everyone else has to make a sacrifice. The only way that you can exist is because everyone else has sacrificed themselves. And when you can think of it that way, then you can, it's easier for you to think of them the same way that you think of your own child. Because when your child is misbehaving, you don't add that, you don't add that, you don't uh, make, make a choice to, okay, for, uh, well. <laughs> In the ideal situation, <laughs> The ideal situation. Oh, your baby, your baby. Okay. <laughs> when your baby is crying and, and, and it's yelling, it's not a, it's not annoying. It love it draws love from you. Okay, because of how you're relating to the baby, the noise is not annoyance. Okay, and because your neighbor is not relating the same way, then they say, I'm gonna call the cops on this baby. <laughs> okay. Now, because you're not reacting to the baby the way the neighbor's reacting, do you feel powerless? Do you feel like, oh, this love thing is making me powerless? Or do you feel strengthened? Okay. And this was in the news, I don't know, maybe 1980s or 1970s. A, a, a mother, empowered by her love for her child, lift a car. You can, you can Google it. <laughs> okay. Because if Google says it exists, it exists. <laughs> okay. She wasn't like 10 feet tall and you know, she used to lift cars for, for, for a living. <laughs> that wasn't what made her able to do it. It's the love for her child. 
and, and we have to sort of recondition ourselves to get rid of all these notions of the weakness of love. Because we see bad examples of somebody behaving in a selfish way and then calling it love and then we are associating that with love. And of course, that's why we are hesitating to fully take on love. Okay, I'll give love only to this one. <laughs> because I'm willing to sacrifice to being weak for this one. But not going to be weak for that one. Like Just like the neighbor says. Okay, I'm not going to be weak for that baby. It's not my baby. I'm going to be strong. I'm going to get angry. I'm going to call the cops. If the cops dare touch that baby, <laughs> see what love, what power love gives you. <laughs> okay. All right. That was a, uh, that was my talk. <laughs> you already had your meditation, so you can just do a dedication. Okay. So whatever you were able to understand, whatever felt nice. <laughs> Dedicated to the ultimate. Okay. So just go back to your meditative state and pledge to re-examine love. We have a reacquaint yourself, your relationship with love. Love is truly immense. Whatever tiny bit of it that we were able to taste just to thinking about it. May each and every one here be strengthened in that conviction by actually seeing love's power.
in an undeniable way. As a friend of mine was a scaredy cat, afraid of everything. And she's having some very disturbing experiences. And I give her advice, do this, do that. No, she would not do it, she would not confront it. And now she has someone whom she loves who's, exp who's in the same danger. That same lady who was a scary cat who's will not even think of confronting this thing, confronts it with such power that she overcame it. So when her thought wasn't about saving herself, it was about saving someone else, then she found all the power that she needed. I'm not going to give you any more detail than that, but <laughs> find your own example. <laughs> okay, thank you. Will you be here next? Please? No, I won't be here next Friday. <laughs> and I won't be here again. Let me see. Yeah, I'll be here the following Friday. Okay. <laughs> Sorry about that. Uh, it's, I planned it that way. <laughs> <laughs>